What it takes to forgive. Joseph forgives. That, as I've argued before, was a turning point in history because this was the first recorded act of forgiveness in literature. It's important here to make a key distinction between forgiveness, which is a characteristic of the Judeo-Christian tradition, and the appeasement of anger, which really is a human universal. People are constantly harming others who then become angry, indignant and disrespected, and if the offender does nothing to turn away their wrath, they will take revenge. Revenge is one way of restoring the social order, but it's a very costly and dangerous one because it can lead to a circle of retaliation that has no natural stopping point. One of my family offends one of your family, think of the Montagues and Capulets, or the Corleones and the Tetalias, so one of your family takes revenge, which one of my family must retaliate for the sake of family honour, and so it goes, sometimes for generations. The cost is often so great that it's in everyone's interest to find a way of stopping the cycle. That is universal. It exists in every human group and some non-human ones as well. So the general way of bringing this kind of conflict to an end is what the ancient Greeks called nome, often translated as forgiveness, but which actually, as David Constant shows in his masterly book Before Forgiveness, actually means something like pardon, appeasement, a willingness to make allowances or accept an excuse or grant an indulgence. The end result is that the victim forgoes revenge. The offender doesn't atone. Instead, he or she makes some kind of plea in mitigation. I couldn't help it. It wasn't that bad. It's human nature. I got carried away. In addition, the offender must show in words or body language some form of humility or submission. One classic example in the Torah is Jacob's conduct towards Esau when they meet again after more than 20 years, during which time Jacob had been away in the home of Laban. He knew that Esau felt wronged by him and had declared his intention to take revenge after their father Isaac had died, and that's why Jacob fled in the first place. When they meet again, Jacob doesn't mention the earlier incident, but he does attempt to appease. He attempts to appease Esau by sending him an enormous gift of livestock and by abasing himself bowing down to him seven times, calling him my lord and himself your servant. For his part, Esau doesn't mention the earlier episode, whether he because he'd forgotten it or it no longer rankled with him or because he was mollified by Jacob's self-abasement. Now, this was not remorse and forgiveness. This was submission and appeasement. What Joseph does toward his brothers is different. When he first reveals himself to them, he says, And now don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. This sounds like forgiveness, but as this week's Parsha makes clear, it's not necessarily so. The word forgiveness was not used, and the brothers may well have assumed that as in the case of Esau, Joseph intended to take revenge, but not during the lifetime of their father. And that is what provokes the following drama at the end of this week's parasha. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? 
So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's wrong and the sin they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And this was Joseph's response. Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This is forgiveness. Joseph doesn't use the word, but it makes it clear that he forgoes all thought of revenge. What's happening here, and why didn't it happen in other cultures? This is one of the most fascinating features of Judaism and why it eventually made such a difference to the world. Note what has to happen for forgiveness to be born. First, Joseph engages in an elaborate plan, hiding his identity, to make sure the brothers were capable of remorse and atonement. This happens on their first encounter in Egypt when he accuses them of being spies and they say in his presence, not knowing that he could understand them, we are guilty because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come on us. They know they've done wrong. They acknowledge their guilt. Second, Joseph arranges a trial that will test whether Judah, the brother who proposed selling him into slavery in the first place, is indeed a changed person. He has Benjamin brought before him on a false charge and is about to take him as his slave when Judah intervenes and offers to become a slave in his place so that Benjamin can go free. This is what the sages in Maimonides defined as complete repentance. That is, you have so changed that you are now a different person. These two elements tell us what has changed in the brothers so that they, the wrongdoers, can be forgiven. And there's a change in Joseph too, as we saw in last week's Covenant of Conversation. He has reframed his life so that the entire story of his relationship with his brothers has now become utterly secondary to the drama of divine providence that's still unfolding as he explains. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. This is what allows the victim, Joseph, to forgive. But these are just details. What's absolutely fundamental is that Judaism represents, for the first time in history, a morality of guilt rather than shame. In the past, we've explored some of the elements that made it possible. Earlier this year, we spoke of the difference between tradition-directed cultures and what the call to Abraham initiated, namely inner-directed cultures. Tradition-directed individuals, when they break the rules, feel shame. Inner-directed people feel guilt. We also spoke about the difference between cultures of the eye and of the ear. Visual cultures are almost always shame cultures. Shame is what you feel when you imagine other people seeing what you are doing. The first instinct when you feel shame is to try to hide or to wish you were invisible. In cultures of hearing, however, morality is an inner voice, the voice of guilt that you can't hide from even if you're invisible to the world. The key difference between the two is that in shame cultures, wrongdoing is like a stain on the person. Hence, the only way to be rehabilitated is to have the stain covered up somehow. 
the meaning we noted of the verb caper, which means to cover up. You do this by placating the victim of your wrong so that in effect he turns a blind eye to what you did. His resentment, indignation and desire for revenge have been appeased. But in guilt cultures, there's a fundamental difference between the person and his or her acts. It was the act that was wrong, not the person. That is what makes forgiveness possible. I forgive you because when you admit you did wrong, express remorse and do all you can to make amends, especially when I see that given the opportunity, as was Judah, to repeat the crime, you do not do so because you have changed, then I see you have distanced yourself from the deed. Forgiveness means I fundamentally reaffirm your worth as a person despite the fact that we both know that your act was wrong. Forgiveness exists in righteousness and guilt cultures. It does not exist in honour and shame cultures like those of ancient Greece or pre-Christian Rome. Contemporary culture in the West, often thought by secularists to be morally superior to the ethics of the Hebrew Bible, is in fact, for good or bad, a regression to pre-Christian Greece and Rome. That's why nowadays people who are found to have done wrong are publicly shamed. They don't, I don't need to give examples. They're bound in every day's news. In a shame culture, the main thing to do is not to be found out because once you are, there is no way back. There is no place in such a culture for forgiveness. At best, you seek to appease. As in ancient Greece, the culprit argues, I couldn't help it, it wasn't that bad, it's human nature, I got carried away. They undergo some ritual of self-abasement. Eventually, they hope not that people will forgive, but that they will forget. This is an ugly kind of culture. Which is why Judaism remains the eternal alternative. What matters is not outward appearances but inner voice and when we do wrong as we all do there is a way forward to confess express remorse atone make amends and like judah change to know that however wrong our deeds the soul you gave me god is pure and that if we work hard on ourselves we can be forgiven is to inhabit a culture of grace and hope. That is forgiveness, and it's a life-changing idea.